재미와 지식의 오디오라이프 팝빵 Examining Korean cultures past and present through compelling conversations and documentary storytelling This is Koreascape on TBS EFM We're joined by Madeline Christensen. She's with our team for a little while from the University of Texas. Hi, Madeline. Morning, Kurt. Yes, so uh, have you noticed this bad air? Is it different from the Texas air? It definitely is. I heard a lot about it before I came, but once you step off the plane, you can really see the fog kind of sitting over the city, and it's it's a sight to see. It's a different visual than it was even like eight years ago. The cityscape looks different. It's much hazier. So you've got a couple of uh, headlines to recap for us just to put this issue into perspective. Why don't you fire those at me? Sure. So um, one of the ones that's been really popular with a lot of these newspapers that they've been referencing is the Environmental Performance Index, which was released in January of this year. And it basically reports on the latest environmental data, kind of so policymakers know where they need to improve at. Mm -hmm. And it ranks 180 different countries in various um, high-priority environmental issues. And so out of 180 countries, South Korea was ranked number 173 in terms of air quality. Wow. Meaning, yeah, meaning, well, it did pretty bad. So um, out of 100, it scored 45.51, so less than half in terms of air quality. And that's the thing that really gets policymakers' attention over here when they come out low on these global surveys because Korea is, uh, to put it mildly, somewhat obsessed with its global image. And so this is the kind of thing that's going to grab their attention. Any other things going on? Yeah, so more recently, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, or the OECD, uh, released their Better Life Index, Mm. which focuses on various aspects uh, that matter to people, such as jobs, education, and like we're talking about the environment. Yep. So this report stated that Korea had PM 2.5 levels of 29.1 micrograms per cubic meter, and PM 2.5 is basically a fine particle matter that can get into the smallest... um, parts of your body. So the average level um, is 14.5 micrograms per cubic meter. And the World Health Organization says that um, air is unsafe when exposure is more than 10 micrograms. So Korea is almost three times that level. Whoa. And we're talking about different kinds of pollutants, right? There's the yellow dust that comes over from the Gobi Desert. Then there's all kinds of industrial pollutants. And I believe it was a Greenpeace study that started to challenge the conventional wisdom that hey, all of this is just China dumping on us. Right, yeah. The the Greenpeace Environmental Group basically uh, said that about 50 to 70 percent of the air pollution is coming from Korea's coal plants themselves rather than from China, which is like what the Korean government likes to put the blame of the air pollution on. Yeah, it's interesting because there is a bunch of uh, coal-related manufacture going on here, but still to me it seems like a drop in the bucket compared to what's happening in China. Now, Madeline, in, in an effort to learn more about sort of the social and health costs of this bad air, you headed on over to a local hospital for us. 
Yes, so I got to speak with Dr. Imgaram of Yonsei University Severance Hospital, and he pointed out to me that humans do a whole lot of breathing. Normal people uh, breathe 12 to 16 times per one minute, and approximately like 500 millimeters of air goes in and out per one breath. Means our respiratory system faces about six to eight liters of air every minute. That's why quality acts so important in people's life. When irritants in air, like the pollutants or fine dust, yellow dust, they come into the airway, then people cough to spit it out. But they are not totally removed. The remnant irritants can cause local inflammation and cause respiratory symptoms continuously. If the person is on condition of chronic respiratory diseases, like if they, are, if they are smoking or they have some kind of asthma or COPD, they can cause more serious problems in their lung and can affect irreversible damages. Have you done more coughing here in Korea than you do back home in the States? Not that I've noticed, but definitely my health feels different. It is different. I get it in my eyes and in my nose. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm a relatively healthy individual. Some people are more vulnerable than, than others, though, right? Yes. So I actually got to ask the doctor about that, and it really comes down to the ability to cough. Young kids, like before 10 years old, and old-age people whose muscles are not strong enough to cough efficiently, they are very vulnerable to those bad irritants. Remnant irritants will cause inflammation and disease over and over repeatedly. And if people have chronic respiratory disease such as asthma and chronic bronchitis, emphysema, or people who smoke, their lungs are very fragile. means that their lungs are very easy to be damaged and hard to be recovered. So your ability literally with the muscles to cough up the bad stuff, the sputum, uh, with kids and with the sick and with the elderly, they're especially vulnerable. And it's a problem that compounds itself because if they can't cough, they can't get rid of the bad stuff and uh, they, they breathe in more and more and more of it. So uh, it's a bad situation for them. Ultimately, let's cut to the chase here. Skip to the end. What is the solution to this problem? Well, it's a tough problem, and there, there are those face masks that everyone wears that you can buy, but the doctor says that even those aren't a total solution. The mask cannot protect them all because these days, like, very fine dust, if they just go through the mask, and people cannot prevent it. So the only way, I think, is just don't go outside. And when you come back from outside and or school or something, than just two goggles, it can protect your airway just a little bit. That's a cheerful message, Madeline. Don't go outside. It gives me an excuse now when I don't want to do something, <laughs> yeah. though. I, I'm sorry. I, I'm just thinking about my lungs. <laughs> I'm going to stay in and watch an entire season of Breaking Bad instead of... It's for of, my health. It's for my health. So uh, past the uh, the chips. Yeah, uh, I don't know as though I can uh, sign on to that. There was a headline the other week in one of the papers saying the government is considering banning public gatherings when the, you know, pollutant level is too high. I think that's a bit of a nanny state kind of reaction. Ultimately, it's they should provide the information and let people decide for themselves, don't you think? I Yeah, I agree. I mean, they're trying to keep the health of everybody in in best terms, but... You know, it's up to the person, really. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a matter of finding out for sure what the real causes are. And we're going to talk about that uh, a little bit. There are efforts underway to, I guess you can say, assign blame. 
But for now, Madeline, uh, I appreciate the research you did for us. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Well, as I mentioned, NASA has been working together with the Korean government on an air quality sampling project. They've been taking regular flights over the country, and I had a chance to go aboard. Among other things, this NASA mission helped me cross an item off my bucket list, sitting in the cockpit of a large aircraft during takeoff. I sat directly behind the pilots as they throttled up, we lifted off, and seeing Korea just open up before you through five different front view windows is amazing. The airplane cockpit has become such a forbidden zone in the post 9-11 world that this is something I never thought I'd get to experience. As for the plane itself, it's a DC-8 that has been active for 46 years. They don't make them anymore, and NASA has the only working one left. It's about the size of an airliner you might take for short hops, like from Seoul to Tokyo. But instead of row after row of nice, tidy passenger seats, instead there's a dazzling array of tubes, consoles, screens, and equipment. Roosevelt Williams is the flight operations director. Uh, this aircraft is a scientific flying lab. It's equipped to take uh, air samples, and uh, it's configured to uh, determine the quality of the air. Today we have scientists uh, from both countries, uh, Korea and, and the U.S., We've collaborated, put together a team effort to determine the uh, the qualities, and we're taking different samples of formaldehyde, ethane, CO2, just different levels to see what the uh, air quality and pollution status is. Each console and each team at each console has a specific job measuring a different aspect of the air. I'm Chelsea Core, and I'm a postdoctoral fellow at NASA Langley Research Center in Virginia. When Chelsea gets a little downtime at one point in the flight, she gives me a bit more of a nitty-gritty view of what's going on. On this plane, we have a number of instruments measuring both gas phase pollution as well as particle phase. So when I say particle phase, we're talking about solid or liquid droplets that are suspended in the atmosphere that basically create haze or, or that kind of hazy look outside when, when it's about to pollute a day. There's also another number of gas phase instruments on board as well. Kind of looking at the interplay between those interactions and, um, and sunlight, seeing how that influences local air quality as well as visibility. Um, but we also look at the particle size, how many of them there are in the atmosphere. Um, and then there's a groups, other groups on board that are looking at what the chemistry of those particles are. Uh, and then, as I said, there's other groups that are doing the gas phase side of things. It's really loud in flight, so everyone wears a headset. Do you know what kind of fuel they burn in PP4, Sally? So PP4, I think, is gas. But the database I looked at put two power plants on PP2, one of which is gas and fill up one of which is oil. The headsets are all networked together, so everyone can talk to everyone else simultaneously. It's a big online scientific chat room with another second chat environment happening in text form on computer screens. A few giant hoses are coming into the fuselage from the outside, and a technician is busily changing filters and sensors on that. Information about the air samples is pouring onto the monitors in the form of charts, waveforms, and other different kinds of visuals. Ultimately, what makes this flight so unique, though, is not the instruments and the scientific analysis that's happening, but the trajectory of the flight itself. Too low terrain. Too low terrain. In the cockpit, an automatic warning system continually says, too low terrain to the pilots. But they don't pay it too much attention. These guys want to get as close to the ground as they can. They're executing over and over what pilot Dick Ewers calls a missed approach maneuver. 
The only way you can get down to a very, very low altitude with a large jet like this is to pretend you're going to do a landing. So what we do is we tell the tower, we're going to pretend to do a landing, which means we come all the way down, but we don't touch the ground, but we get down to within 100 feet of the ground, which puts the inter instruments, all these scientists, want to get down to the very low elevation and then sample the air as we climb up to see what level the pollutants stay or stop or how high they climb and how thick they are at the different levels. So we use approaches over actual runways to safely come down to a very low altitude. What that means is that in addition to circling around in a constant pattern of figure eights over the Korean peninsula, the plane is constantly diving and climbing. It can be a little bit of a nail biter if, like me, you're not really used to it. We're doing something that a fighter pilot does every day. They're down there lower level all the time because the airplane's very maneuverable. But a large transport aircraft was not designed to fly down here. So we're flying at an altitude that uh, the airplane wasn't designed for, but this aircraft is very, very sturdy, very stable, and we can uh, safely fly out over the water. We do, we, we're down below 500 feet, right around 500 feet we go down easily. And over land we try to stay about 1,000. That's, that's just, just to give us a cushion if a little hill or buildings or something comes up so we can climb over it safely. Uh, but the aircraft has a lot of performance. There's a lot of thrust on these engines. It's very safe to do, and the pilots that we have flying this are former fighter pilots that have done this for a living. I mean, I did it for 25 years in the, in the military before I ever came, uh, came to NASA. So it's, it's, it's routine for me, but it's not routine for the jet and in this large of an airplane. You don't need a pilot's license or special equipment to know that air quality has taken a turn for the worse in recent years here in Korea. But it's interesting to look at the problem through the eyes of a pilot. I was here in the military 30 years ago. And it was a very rural environment in those days. Uh, I mean, I, as a Marine Corps, I lived in a tent. Small little towns and villages and stuff were normal. And now it's enormous growth. This, uh, this country has gone through a transition in the last 30 years that exploded with highways, infrastructure, automobile manufacturing, and things that have just created a huge pollution problem. And it's very visible. I remember being able to see blue sky and stars. I've been here for three weeks, and I haven't seen a star yet. You cannot see straight up. It's so hazy. It's like living in Los Angeles back in the, uh, in the 60s. Right now, this is the clearest day we've had. We can see about four or five miles. Typically, you can see uh, in the morning, you can see one or two. And uh, we shoot approaches over there where, where we're uh, down to three-mile visibility. And, that, and that's abnormal. I mean, that's, that's abnormal in the United States. We have cleaned up our atmosphere in the United States. I don't think the uh, Koreans have come to grips with how bad this really is and solved it. That's Dick Ewers there, who incidentally is a retired NASA pilot, but NASA has a real shortage of pilots, so they call him out of retirement for missions like this. I want to extend a real special thanks to NASA for that opportunity. I felt like a little kid up in that plane, sort of diving and climbing and working with the scientists. I did ask the question, look, if you want to get so low, why even go airborne in the first place? Why not set this all up on a truck or something? And the pilot pointed out very sensibly, the plane can cover massive amounts of territory very quickly. A truck can only go a certain amount of uh, area at a time. The plane can go back and forth over the Korean Peninsula many, many times over, and they do in their flights, which are wrapping up about now, so we may have some answers about the air pollution problem in Korea. And that'll do it for this special Saturday edition of Koreascape. Our show is produced by Christina Sol with associate production by Jamie Lee. GP1 is our writer. Special thanks to Madeline Christensen for her contributions in this show. I'm Kurt Asian. 
do throw us a like on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Koreascape is the handle. And we will be back again on Monday with fresh editions of Culture Pulse and Rock Scholar. We'll see you then.